Are you tired of your content not getting the reach it deserves? Change that at Grow With Video Summit. From May 23rd through the 25th, join industry leaders like Gary Vee, Ali Abdal, Patrick Bet David, Cody Sanchez, and more for strategies that will elevate your visibility and engagement. So go to summit.thinkmedia.com to secure your ticket. Just click the link in the description or go to summit.thinkmedia.com. When I post more shorts, I can feel that subscriber growth more than when I'm just doing my regular uploads, for sure. The biggest mistake new content creators make is not releasing anything until they think it's perfect. What do you think independent creators, since now you've lived in both worlds, could learn from what you learned in traditional media? The most important mindset you need as a content creator is that you are talking to one person. That's everything, I think. Welcome back to the Think Media Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to a creator that has generated 1.9 million views in the last six months. She's going to be breaking down her strategy. She's actually growing 10,000 subscribers per month, but there was a season recently where views were down, subscribers were down, and she was kind of in a YouTube recession. And maybe you can relate to that. And so we're going to be unpacking the story of Orly, the DIY designer today. She has over 460,000 subscribers. She's also the creator of Hashtag Style Language, which is a viral personal style concept with 5.5 million hits on TikTok. We're going to be talking about long form, short form. She's going to be unpacking her secrets and talking about how she monetizes and has really built a business around all of this. Orly, welcome to the Think Media Podcast. What's up? Thank you so much for having me. How fun. For those that are just meeting you, can you break down what it is you do on YouTube and just kind of your background in fashion, DIY fashion, and how you ended up here? 100%. So, you know, it's so funny. uh, YouTube has always felt to me like an accident in a weird way because I've grown up my whole life making clothes. It's always something I've done. I come from a family of artists, a family of entrepreneurs. You know, if you have an idea for something, chances are what you want doesn't exist and you make it. That's just like the mentality of my whole family growing up. A A huge portion of my life had to do with style and fashion and how much I loved that and how much I loved the ability to customize and really communicate who you are through your style. And then there was a, a, a separate love that was entertaining and, you know, being on camera and being myself on camera. And those worlds kind of merged. And I'd say, you know, the last probably 10 or 15 years of my career has really been more traditionally on, on television shows, doing this stuff on TV. And I'd say it was maybe like my third or fourth year on a show called Home and Family, which is a daytime talk show on Hallmark, where I started feeling really disconnected from my own aesthetic and my own voice and my own personality and way of showing up on camera. Like I was, I was a Hallmarked version of myself, which is not super me, um, not super me. And so I literally went to YouTube just to have a place where I could continue to do creative things, talk about the things I loved, but in my own voice, where I was the only one in charge. The DIYs could be something I thought were cool. The voice could be my own. The tone could be my own. And so that's all it was supposed to be. And I think it's now been, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's six years, six or seven years that I've been doing it. And yeah, you know, I think this month hit like 530,000 subscribers, which is, you know, it it continues to confuse me. <laughs> like, wait, what's happening? You know? How did and when you jumped out, did you go from traditional support of 
Hallmark filming and things like that to completely indie? How did you launch your YouTube channel? Well, a huge reason I was able to launch was my brother. So my brother, his name's Ben Shani, um, Ben Shani Creative, if you follow him on Instagram. He is a videographer and a photographer and my like cre- my like creative soulmate. Like we really, really are very, very close. And he has supported me in every kooky endeavor I've ever wanted to do. And he, and he supported me in a way that he's made it look professional. He's made it look polished. He's made it look bigger than it was from the get. And that's the same with Rocknot. I, I have a brand and he does all the photography for that for the website. And so he's always allowed me to feel a little bit more legit than I felt at the time. And so he shot everything for me. And in the beginning, he shot all of the DIYs. Like I would physically DIY, I would only worry about making what I was making and he would film and he would do close-ups and he would edit and I would sit next to him while he edited and I would explain like, no, 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 we don't, we don't actually need that. Okay. No, 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 that part. But then can you make that slow? You know, and I would walk him through it. And I don't know when it was, maybe it was a year and a half in or two years in, it just wasn't sustainable. He was, you know, out of town filming and doing bigger jobs. And so I started filming it myself. I started editing it myself and it all became something that I did 100% on my own, except for if anyone uh, follows my YouTube channel, they know it well, the sort of like modeling session at the end of every video where I wear and style the thing I made. And I, you know, very embarrassingly walk up and down my block and wave at my neighbors. And I'm like, yes, I'm that person, you know, modeling on the street right now. Um, He films that part, but the rest I do myself. And, you know, and I think that that is one of the hardest parts, I think, about being a content creator that gets a little sort of on by... I'll give you an example. I have a a good friend who I actually was in business with for a while. And he is super funny, super smart, super successful, and has a big mouth. And it's everything that I love about him. And one of the, I remember him going on a rant. He has a podcast. And I remember him going on a rant and he was talking about this burnout, YouTube burnout, creator burnout. And just the entire tone of the conversation was this incredibly overwhelming eye roll. Like seriously, it's because you guys have never worked a day in your life. And now like, you know, throwing out these fun videos where you dance around is so hard. Like, oh my God. And I so badly wanted to call him and be like, I have the benefit of perspective because I came from traditional television. And I know that not only is every department its own department with multiple people, but there are multiple departments to make this one thing happen. And so when I was doing a DIY segment, I had a producer who who their only job was to come up with ideas. Then I had a producer whose only job was to figure out the order of how the actual segment would go. And I had someone who did hair and makeup and I had someone who did wardrobe and we had cameramen and we had editors, and we had a marketing department, and we had social media, and we had every arm, multiple people in every department. And when you are building a YouTube channel, you are not only every individual, you are every department. And it is a lot of jobs, and it is a lot of work. And so it is so infuriating to me when people make it as though it's not a real job, because what what we're doing successfully is we're making it look easy. We're sending you a little fun seven minute segment that's perfectly packaged and the personality and the fun and the light and the music and the sound effects are all there to make it feel like a pop of ease. But what it takes to create that pop of ease is a tremendous amount of work. And so it's all, I almost want to be like, you're falling for it. You're falling for how easy it looks. Like that's what we is successful, right? But it is really an incredible amount of work. And so 
the incredibly long answer to your question is, yeah, I do it as a one woman show and I do it entirely on my own, um, except for the modeling session, which my brother still shoots. And when you first picked up the camera and picked up a video editor, what was that learning curve like? Was it rough at first? Did you have some previous experience? How did you, by maybe being in design, maybe you had the eye for shot composition, but even just camera operation settings and things like that. How did you accelerate your learning curve once you took every aspect of basically video creation upon yourself individually? Well, I will say that right after I graduated high school, I moved to New York City and I went to a school called the New York Film Academy. And at the time, I really loved, I've always loved the idea of creating worlds and creating stories. And I thought that directing would be a really cool way of taking all of those interests. And so I went to school. And while I don't think that I actually apply much of what I learned as far as shot composition or storytelling there, I do think that the editing piece, there was some kind of muscle memory that I was able to actually retain it while I watched Ben edit. I actually remembered a little bit of how to do it. And as soon as I got back into trying it myself, there was a shorthand that I was like, oh, wait, I remember this. Like, Command B, like I just remembered funky little things, even though I hadn't done it in in such a long time. So I do think part of it is that. The other piece I think is really just my experience in front of the camera in that limited role. I got to see what everyone else did and I got to learn from people who are the best at what they do and see the things that they're concerned about. And, and even, you know, for example, like on Home and Family, that was like live DIY boot camp. You know, it was a five day a week, two hour a day, 52 week a year daytime talk show, um, taped, you know, live to tape. And so seeing the camera guys in rehearsal talk about like, okay, once you, you're going to, you're going to focus on this one moment, wait till you see the camera cut, hold, hold until you see we've got at least three seconds and then move on and we'll cut, watch it watch it and let it breathe for a second. Like they taught me, they trained me in what they needed so that when I was then doing it on my own, I knew what I was going to need when I was editing. I knew I was going to need a still moment to cut into, and I was going to need enough of a breather for the audience to grab it and then move on. And so if I'm moving too fast, I can't use any of that yet. We've got to settle. Like I just learned from them, I think. And then it's just mimicked. Like you do it and you're like, that feels good. That feels familiar, you know? And and it's amazing how quick you can learn. And as far as camera settings are concerned, I use auto settings always. Like I leave the fancy stuff to my brother. I use auto settings on mine with the auto light adjuster and like all of that stuff. Because again, it's it's one too many jobs. You know, if I'm focusing on trying to actually create a pattern and sew and I'm too obsessed with worrying about changing the settings, it's it's too many distractions in my brain. So I rely on those auto settings. And I think, you know, take some of the weight off of needing the best of the best, you know, and and really rely on some of the amazing technology that these cameras have now. In the background of your shot, we could see a tripod and a camera <laughs> and a shotgun microphone. What camera are you using for creating your videos? So I use a Canon. It is the Canon M50, I believe. Um, I'd have to even look at it. I mean, I bought it probably three years ago now. Um, and it's just a, it's, it's to me, I knew the thing that I wanted the most was obviously a, a camera that had great 
you know, picture quality, but that had obviously the, you know, uh, screen that I could bend back to myself so I could make sure that I was recording and that things were still, you know, in frame. I I really looked for something that was going to be super user-friendly, had good automatic settings. And then again, just had a, a screen that I could flip towards myself for the most basic needs. And it's worked beautifully for what I need. And then what kind of video editing software are you editing on? I use Final Cut and it's, you know, I have found it to be so easy and it's what I used when I was in film school. So it it feels really familiar to me. And I think like I even, I have a girlfriend who uses uh, iMovie and I was like, you know, as soon as you're ready, the jump to final cut will be so easy because it's all the same kind of you know, it's, it's just the grown up version of that in a sense. And so if you're starting on iMovie, you know, knowing that final cut is building on those building blocks, whereas maybe premiere or whatever is a little bit of a, of a shifting in your perspective, learning things and, and thinking of it in a different way. Um, and, and I love it. I mean, it's, it's given me everything that I need. Yeah. Here at Think Media, we agree. I think, uh, there's a lot of good video editing softwares, but the iMovie Final Cut Mac or MacBook workflow is definitely like the easiest, I think most streamlined workflow if you can, uh, get all of those tools. And even Nolan Molt created a full length free, basically Final Cut course that just exists on YouTube. It's like oh, two yeah. hours. That's like you teaches you everything. And so um, if anyone's interested, we'll link that up in the show notes. That's but awesome. I, st- I actually want to hang on uh, your time at Hallmark yeah. in traditional television with a question of what do you think independent creators, since now you've lived in both worlds, could learn from what you learned in traditional media and what is also a mistake you think that traditional make a media is making now in light of your experience boots on the ground of new media creation and social media you know i've had an interesting career in in the more traditional media i was on a competition show on nbc and then i hosted two shows on the e network that were style shows and i did fashion police and live from the red carpet and you know, doing the Today Show and Access and kind of having uh, an interesting experience bouncing through all of these worlds. And I think that the one thing that I have realized is everybody's really scared. (laughs) Everybody's really scared. And no one necessarily has a real vision because no one's really in charge. And even who is in charge isn't really in charge. And even that person who's in charge isn't really in charge. And so people are very scared to take a risk. People are very scared to follow a gut. And it can become, it, it can become a little bit of like a, I, I don't know how to describe it. it. It almost feels like you're like a buoy in the water and, and everyone's just kind of bouncing around these waves and the waves take different directions on different days. And everyone's just sort of on this weird ride. There's no one, there's no anchor. Um, and, and that's the one thing that I think has been very, very cool and very, a breath of fresh air about the content creation space is like you are your own anchor and you get to make very clear decisions based off very clear gut feelings and you get to have a very clear voice and you don't have to be so confused all the time and try to check everyone else's boxes when those boxes change every few years and you contort yourself and mold yourself into something to check the boxes today. And then when they change, you're like yesterday's news and you're like, no, 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 but like I can be that too. Like, it's a, it's a, it's a trap, you know, it's really exhausting. And so I do think that traditional media is looking and in love with creators who, who are authentically who they are and create this entire universe around them where everyone buys in. But then we've all seen that moment where they make the move to traditional 
And all of a sudden, all of the voices get in there and sort of unauthenticate them in everything that made them special. It's just different. It's a sort of, it's a, it's a bit of a corporate machine and there are biggest, bigger interests at play and it, it gets very confusing. And so I wish that traditional media would trust the like very real time feedback that the audience provides. I think the audience engagement on social media should be telling you more than the ratings, like a Nielsen rating. And the fact that a show could trend on Twitter and then get canceled for bad ratings, like something's off. We're, we're not, we're not looking at the same information. And so it's the same as like film. I feel like that happens in film. You know, the Barbie movie was such a great example. Like, it blew up and took over the world in such an impactful way. But, you know, movies continuously get made with different goals or different directions or different audiences in mind when the audience will tell you what it wants, the, you know, social media. And, and, and I think that that is one of the reasons that the content creation digital space has a leg up, but it's still like not fully taken as seriously or with as much weight, which I think is a real mistake. Real-time audience feedback is priceless. And for the small creator, um, that's not the season they're in, at least on their personal content, before you're getting comments, before you're getting that feedback. But for the established creator, we it's such a powerful perspective you just shared of us not re really considering how valuable it is that not only can we create content, but we have a continuous feedback loop which can help us make better content that resonates more and steer away if we start to miss it um, because it's not, it doesn't have all the corporate red tape or drama around it. We just are direct to consumer. I want to talk about a while ago, you, I don't remember where we talked. It might've been on a coffee with Cannell and you were going through a season where views were down, growth was down. Now, if we look at your channel, 1.1 million views in the last 28 days, 10,000 new subscribers, almost 8 million views over the last six months, 52,000 new subscribers. So clearly, in a way, you kind of revived a dead channel. Your channel wasn't dead, but that's, that's a language a lot of people think about. Like, oh, my oh, yeah. channel died. Like yep. the algorithm killed my channel. How do I revive it? How do I get my channel alive again? You've been doing that what do you, what has changed? Did you just get consistent? Did you just persevere through the valley of death? Or is there anything else you've tried? Yeah, man, Sean, it is such a disheartening feeling. It really is. And like anybody, and, and this is a feeling that like, you know, you almost don't want to feel because there's a little bit of shame around it and there's a little bit of embarrassment around it. But for the new creator who's just coming to YouTube, who's just thinking about creating a channel, who feels like they're working their butt off and they're not getting traction and they're not getting views, or the creator who was very much like me, who felt like they had tremendous success. And then you're like, what happened? There, It, it is very hard not to take it personally. It is, it, it feels embarrassing it feels like you're a loser. <laughs> like literally these core little middle school feelings, like you didn't get picked first. That stuff comes up for you as a, you're, we're creative people. Most of us are in touch with our emotions and connected to that piece. And so we feel this stuff. We really do. And it, it, it was very hard. It continues to be very hard. I remember so vividly, there was a, a girl who, is actually one of the reasons I started my YouTube channel. She had come on Hallmark 
as a guest, but she was a YouTuber. And I was at the place in my time there where I was like, I think I need an outlet. And I, I went to her studio in downtown LA and her and her husband had run her channel together. And she was telling me all about how she started and gave me really, you know, great advice of, you know, pick a set day and pick a set time and let people get used to it and just be consistent. And I always kept track of her. Like she was always someone I kept track of. And I remember so vividly that after my first year, maybe when things were going really well, I hadn't had a hundred thousand subscribers yet, but every video was doing over like a hundred thousand views on every video. It was crazy. And I remember looking at her channel and seeing that she had 700,000 subscribers and videos were getting like 7,000 views. And I remember having a deep fear, <laughs> like a literal deep fear. I'm like, oh my God, like, does that happen? Like, does it not just keep going up and up and up? Like, does that happen? And why does that happen? And when that happens, what do you do? And I, and, and then I remember feeling like, oh my God, it happened. It happened. It just fell off a cliff. And there were different reasons. You know, one of the things that, that we talked about when we were talking about doing this was about how I had hired an agency to help because I was like, I don't know what the hell's going on, but it literally feels like my channel is just being like ghosted and it's existing in a bubble and nobody even knows it's there anymore. And so I hired this company to help me and the the company didn't really do anything. But one of the things that they did bring to my attention was that during COVID, um, I did a video in, in March, like that March of 2020, um, of how to make your own face masks when face masks were, you couldn't find them. They were non-existent. And I was making them out of old pillowcases and t-shirts, how to make it for the size of your face and all of this stuff. And the video blew up and, and, you know, blew up, blew up. But the problem was that it blew up in such a, with such a wide, varied audience, right? It like people from all over the world, cared about this video. People of every gender, people of every race, people of every age, people of every interest level needed this. And all of a sudden my channel was like, wait, what? Like, who are we? Who likes us? And what they believed was that then it was still sending my videos out to just as many people, but only a tiny fraction actually cared about that content because it was no longer a life-saving necessity. It was like how to shred your jeans, you know? And this guy who lived in Spain was trying to make a mask for his family, couldn't give a crap about that. And so that's what they thought happened. And so it could have just literally been, it took that long to redefine my audience and get very clear again about what I was. I do think, like you said, consistency was a big thing. There was quite a few chunks of time where I was so disheartened, I just took months off. And I was just like, screw this. Like, what am I doing? You know, and I just sort of stopped. And so I've definitely been more consistent. That's all I can really say because it's so funny until you sent me the screenshots of like your channel is doing well. I, I didn't even really know that. I just am like, I'm going to stay consistent, you know, and, and actually the whole reason I decided to stay consistent is so I, when I had that show on E, I hosted it with Kristen Cavallari, who is like the best human ever. Side note, like just the most wonderful, such a girl's girl, so much fun. Just, I love her to death. And we were texting and, and, you know, her brand Uncommon James has become really successful and she has a full staff to do all of the things. And I had launched this business called Rock Knot and it's doing really well, but I am still a one woman show. And I was like, God, I'm so jealous of you right now that like, you've got this whole team. And I was like, you know, YouTube has been really hard, but I think of YouTube as my life money. YouTube is my mortgage. YouTube is my groceries. I want to keep the Rock Knot money in Rock Knot so I can hire someone and I can this. And she's like, 
Well, then shut up and hustle. Get YouTube going again. What are you doing? She's like, hustle that until you don't need it. But come on. And it was like that click that I needed. Like, YouTube is my day job. Hustle. Work the day job. Do it. Do it. Do it. And that's when I got consistent again. And that's when I think it started growing again. Hey, in just a second, we're going to get back into the episode. But if you haven't heard, for a limited time, you can get on-demand access to my YouTube strategy class entirely for free at thinkmasterclass.com. On the class, you're going to learn the one strategy that we use at Think Media that is currently generating over 300,000 views every single day. If you are new to YouTube, this is going to help you start right and avoid mistakes. And if you're already a pro, this is going to help you multiply your growth. And the cool thing is the class is 100% free and you can watch it instantly on demand. All you got to do is go to thinkmasterclass.com or just click the link in the show notes to get instant access. All right, let's jump back into the episode. There's a lot in there. Um, I mean, one, redefining your audience. I think that it's a challenge that many creators can relate to. I know at Think Media, um, we've done many things well. The vision has been clear the best tips and tools for building your influence with video. But one of the challenges with doing a deep final cut training is it attracts people that want final cut. They want video editing, but they may not want a camera and they may not want YouTube advice. And now we've done that for so many years that we have attracted an audience that although specific is, is diverse. And we always say never upload a video your subscribers didn't subscribe for. There's no doubt about it that like conditioning the algorithm, your language of redefining the algorithm. And if someone said, well, how do I do that? Well, it sounds like one way to do that is to get clear on your vision again, get back to consistency again, and also persevere through that season of all kinds of external dynamics, but of maybe the fall off of different audience members that just watched because of a mask video during the pandemic. And now it's kind of YouTube discovering your core audience again, but you ended so powerfully too, with just the mindset. I think our mindset is honestly fragile. I think it's just fragile as humans. I think we have a fragile mindset in general, but I need creators as well. Like, I don't know why we act tough or think we're, uh, you know, think that we have it all together. You mentioned scared earlier. I think we could relate to that, you know, scared. Will this last? Um, am I doing it wrong? Am I going to mess the whole thing up? Did I just ruin my whole future and career? Cause I messed the algorithm up. There's just a lot of mindset things that can, um, cause us to be paralyzed and not post, but ultimately as you got back, as you got consistent, um, you are proof that you got out of that, even just seeing your views on individual videos and your views across the channel, that uh, a channel that has hit a recession or that has died can live again and can be revived. Um, you did seven uploads this last month, some full-length videos and some shorts. What's your current schedule? And have you found that to be sustainable? So I release every Sunday, uh, Sunday morning, 5.15 a.m. Pacific Standard Time um, is when I release the videos. And that, you know, I don't miss. Um, I mean, that's the goal, right? That, that's my like upload, upload. Uh, shorts, I, I am, I can feel it in my gut. I am missing a huge opportunity by not prioritizing it. And I know it. Like, I can feel it. I know it. 
whether YouTube, whether it's because YouTube is pushing shorts or it's bringing a new audience or it's just whatever it is, it's just another opportunity to clarify with the algorithm, like whatever it is. Um, when I post more shorts, I can feel that subscriber growth more than when I'm just doing my regular uploads for sure. So I think that that's a really, really big piece of it. And I know it's something that I need to um, prioritize more. It's just been a difficult one with, with time because oftentimes, you know, I, I just hired, tried, and then I, stopped, hired someone to help create shorts based off my YouTube videos. But because I edit, like I don't love the final edits I get. And so I'm not like super stoked to upload them. And so then time, then I'm like, I've got them sitting in a folder and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing it as much. Whereas I know when I up, when I edit my own short, it's something I feel confident about. It's got my voice, it's got my tone, it's got the important bits. And it, and I normally find that it performs better. But I think that if you can get shorts up, it is a really powerful tool for the rest of your channel because it just feels like this. It's like this little free commercial for your channel. You know, it's like this 30 second, one minute bite-sized teaser for people who maybe don't know what you are and what you're about that might pull them and be like, Oh shit. I didn't know she does all this stuff. There's a new full DIY video every week. Like what? And I get that all the time. Like just discovering this, like people commenting on three-year-old videos being like, I'm just starting down your rabbit hole. This is amazing. Like, so I think really thinking of shorts as being, um, a conversation, it's almost like thinking of YouTube shorts, like TikTok. You don't need any followers on TikTok for your content to reach people who give a crap about it. That's the beauty. That's why TikTok has become such an exciting place for so many people is that if it is interest-based, not follower-based, not subscriber-based, it's if you care about this, we're going to give you this content from someone you've never heard of, and maybe you're going to start following them and you're going to get more of that content. So YouTube Shorts is like that. I think it's that introduction. It's sort of casting that line out into the ocean and being like, anybody? anybody. Um, and so I can feel in myself a wasted opportunity every week that goes by that I, you know, I didn't get one out. Um, and I, and I really, really recommend it. I think it's incredibly powerful. Are you doing a multi platform approach? You mentioned TikTok and you created hashtag style language. Are you active creating content on any other platform and how do you sustain that? Yeah. So I, um, TikTok is the other platform that I try to create as often as I can on for that very reason that the growth there is crazy. Like only on for a year and a half, maybe on TikTok and at 200 and something thousand subscribers there or followers there or whatever, which like compared to Instagram, which I've been on since whatever, 2012. And I have like a hundred thousand and it's just like, you're like crawling this like slow, sad crawl, you know, um, TikTok is exciting in that way. And so the, the main content that has popped for me has been style language content, which for those, you know, most of you, I assume that have no idea what the heck that is. Um, you know, one of the main reasons that I have always gravitated towards DIY is the idea that our style is really only supposed to communicate who we uniquely are. The idea of this aesthetic that's in this trend that's in and sort of mimicking style in its 
you know, is exhausting to me. It's not what it's supposed to be. We're all supposed to look different, carry ourselves different, different energy, different vibes. And style is a really powerful tool. And so just like a love language, you might have a unique way that you give and receive love, that you actually express it and feel it. You have a style language. It's a unique way that you communicate who you are through your physical appearance. It's a unique way that you feel most confident, most like yourself. When you're dressed with these unique blend of elements that all come together in your way, you're like, yeah, that's me. That's when I feel me. And it's a combination of three or four words. So for example, mine is sexy, edgy, effortless, original. And I need all of those energies. That's when I feel like me. If I was dressed super sexy and like glamorous, I would feel so embarrassed. I would feel so cheesy. I would feel so out of my body. But when I create an effortless, relaxed energy to it, and I add something that gives me a little edge and I do something that's unique, now I'm me. Now my personality can shine. Now I'm showing up as my best self. And so DIY, the fashion piece of it always started because I didn't want to buy something that someone else made for me. I wanted to make it my own. I wanted to speak my unique style language. I wanted to customize it to be me. And I wanted to teach other people to do that for themselves. And so it was always kind of my reasoning underneath everything I did anyway. Um, and as soon as I started working on it as a concept and, and trying to write it as a book and all of that stuff, it developed into this like method that had steps and tools and, a, and an online course and it became its own thing. And so what, what has been really fun about TikTok is that there's been an opportunity to create content around it. Some of it is, you know, tutorial demoing type of content where I literally say like, I'm going to wear this camo jacket. And I'm going to style it for four totally different style languages. We're going to do this language, this language, this, and this. And you can see that it's not about the clothes that you own, but about the way that you wear them. You don't need to spend a million dollars. Just tweak the way you're presenting yourself. And so there's that piece. Then there is more a thought, a kernel of it that I want to explain and I want to teach. And I'm eager to teach the information. And then there are people asking questions that it's almost like a one-on-one where I take their question and I answer it. And so that conversation is happening. That has really thrived and been very exciting and something I've really enjoyed. And I try to bring it to YouTube with so, so success. You know, it's a, it doesn't hit quite as much when I do it on YouTube, but that's okay. You know, different platforms. How long does it take you to sustain the TikTok, uh, original TikToks per week? That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that, actually. I think that when I do the replies, that's easy because that's like, That's like, if I asked you a question, like you have all the information in your brain, all you got to do is tell me about it. Like you don't need to script it. You don't need to rehearse it. You would have all the answers of whatever question, right? So in that sense, that's very easy. I literally see a question. I go outside and I, and I answer it. Um, the, when I shoot something that is more of like a demonstration styling and all of those things, I'd say that normally takes me all in about two hours, um, to shoot and to edit. And then to get up and do the text and do all the things that are like natively happening within the TikTok platform, um, probably about two hours. So it it fluctuates, but it's you know this is a this is a season in in my life right now that is that is just you just very overwhelming. It, it just is. You know, I, I think there's a lot of like for you. Do you what is your um, crew like to create the amount of content that you create? What's like oh, your I team? Mean, fake media counting contractors is 30 people now. Yeah, see, that's just, I f- you. I'm so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so yeah. jealous. Um, see, like that is one thing that I have never quite figured out is how to 
grow beyond myself. And so I have always felt a little limited because it's really what I have the capability of doing. And with Rock Knot being as successful as it is, that piece is a huge piece of my day-to-day now. I hired someone to fulfill orders, but we had some hiccups. And so we're taking a minute to, to figure out how we're going to rectify that wrong or wrong items going out and things like that. Um, and so I'm fulfilling orders and designing new products and doing photo shoots and making ads and making a YouTube video every week and editing a short every week and doing a TikTok video and doing a styling. Like it's like, it, it is a lot. And I know it's not sustainable, but they're all things that I think have tremendous futures. And so I don't want to let any of them die. And that's what's what is the struggle. I want to cover monetization income streams in just a second. Um, and I do want to talk about a couple case studies and what you learned from some of your highest performing videos. And then we'll end with a kind of lightning round segment. And I first want to uh, touch on one of your better performing videos in the last year was Denim Trends 2022, Seven Easy Ways to Fray Jeans, 362,000 views. And then you also, a month ago, did I Tried Viral AI TikTok Dresses, and that also did 290,000 views. What have you learned from those videos, especially also tapping into trends related to your niche, related to your topic, and maybe why those videos perform so well and how you came up with them? Yeah. So the trends, the trends video is an interesting one because it certainly didn't pop at first. And so I do think there's one of those things where when we're asked, when we're thinking about our audience and we're thinking about the kind of content that we're providing to them, there's sort of two options. One is valuable, searchable, problem-solving information that in in three or four years from now, they're gonna, it's gonna show up. So learning how to do these things with denim is gonna be a video that's gonna, gonna continue to serve them, even though it wasn't exciting and viral and like, whoa, everyone needs to see it today. It has grown because it is a valuable, always valuable piece of content that aggregates quite a few different trends together, all in one, very in-depth, how to do it. Um, And so it's grown. It it was not a video that seemed like it was going to do really much of anything, but it kind of did over time. And then the dress, the viral dress, that was a graphic that I had got sent probably by 25 people where they would just DM it to me on Instagram. And it was this image that looked like a big rectangle with a couple of slits in it. And then the image would pull the dress up and it created a dress and flatten the dress out and pull the dress up and flatten the dress out. And it looked literally like a rectangle with three slits in it. I tried it and it sucked. It didn't work. And I'm like, you know what? Forget it. This doesn't work. It's just stupid AI. Like, man, it's not real. And then I kept looking at it and I was like, no, there's a way to make this work. Like there's a way to make this actually work. And maybe it's not, maybe it has to be different from what the AI generated one was. And so I played around with it and I figured it out and it turned out to be this really great DIY. Now, one of the things that I think was good about the video was that it was different, formatted differently than my others because I was in New York. I was on vacation. I had filmed the DIY portion of it when I was in LA, but I hadn't done my intro and I hadn't modeled it and I hadn't done any of that stuff. And so when I was in New York, 
walking through the city, going to meet my friends for a drink, I recorded my intro and it was on the go and it was different than me in my room. Like, Hey, welcome to my, you know, and I think that it probably grabbed people initially. It just felt fresh and different. Um, and I think that that was part of it actually is even when there was a, there was a tweak of it. I was in my sister-in-law's backyard and like put up my cell phone and I'm like, Hey, okay. So there's this one thing that I had to explain. And like, I'm in the middle of some random place. And I think those things made the video feel new and fresh to some people combined with the fact that it was literally a 30 second dress that required no sewing. And it was strategically placed cuts that you could make into this really great piece. And so you know, they, they, when they pop, they pop for different reasons. But I, I do feel like part of it was that was just the freshness of the intro and the virality of the TikTok, Instagram, whatever dress to begin with. Um, and, and that's one thing that, you know, I, I have struggled with. I have really tried very hard to stay away from those viral trends because I am not that girl. Like, I'm not that girl. I'm not, I'm not going to do it great. I'm not going to nail it. So I feel like, I have preferred to steer clear of a little bit of that and just really make something that I actually want to own in my closet. Like that's really my, my, my goal is I'm going to make this thing and I'm going to teach you how you can change it and customize it for you so that it speaks your style language and it reflects your style, but I'm not going to follow this trend that everybody's doing. I hate it. I don't like it. So why would I do that? So I've started to trust my gut as far as my own taste is concerned and not do something that feels like it might be clickbaity. I learned that lesson with this Cardi B <laughs> dress that I made. It was this like handkerchief dress and she was everywhere. Like the photos went viral of her wearing this handkerchief dress. And I looked at it and I'm like, I, I mean, I can make that. That's easy. I can make that. I hated it, but I made it. And when the video tanked, it was even more embarrassing because I felt like I was trying to be someone I wasn't. You know, I was like, look at me, make the viral Nicki Minaj dress. Like I felt so like, like, embarrassed of myself because it wasn't like a video I loved that just didn't pop. It was like a video that I felt like a kind of a little bit of a wannabe doing and then it didn't pop. So then I was even more embarrassed, you know? So I think I've, I've followed my gut a little bit more too. Powerful insights. And I think, uh, it seems like when you jumped on the TikTok challenge trend, there was, it resonated with you. So rather than chasing a trend, um, if you feel it, when you feel it, um, jumping on that can be powerful. And it proved it was in the views. I also want to share one of my favorite strategies that is a small tweak that we do in Video Ranking Academy, our signature course. Um, on the seventh R, it's repeat where you kind of not just think about how can you make your next video more intelligently based off data-driven decisions, but also one of the habits of repeat is to look at your channel and think about how you can optimize old videos to give them new life or to give them a longer lifespan. And this little power nugget for the Think Media podcast, I'm grateful you're here wherever you watch or listen, rate or review, smash like if it's on YouTube. Um, but your Denim Trends 2022 video, um, amazing thumbnail that just says DIY frayed jeans seven ways, seven easy ways to fray jeans DIY. And um, not only is it have 362,000 views? But to your point, I think it'll keep getting views for years. The really small tweak, delete 2022. Yeah. Yes. Just say denim trends, exclamation point. And one of the uh, habits we have at the end of each year is we actually just look back 
and we look at what would cause friction because people will still Such watch a, a video that's older. But if someone goes, ah, 2022, but now it's just denim trends, seven easy ways to phrase. It doesn't mean that it's the new year. If relevant, you may actually change the year, but the small tweak is just delete the year. So that's something you can make actionable right now. Think media podcast. Maybe there's something in your library that you could re-optimize. And if you actually do want to uh, learn a little bit more about tax tactics and tips like that, um, and you haven't seen our free class, thinkmasterclass.com, that's an on-demand YouTube class that's in the description as well. Let's land the plane talking a little bit about your money plan, your income sources. You said YouTube is your day job. And so if we were to pull out a, a pie chart and talk about ad revenue, talk about where income comes from, if you have any affiliate links that are relevant, where's, how is YouTube your day job breakdown in terms of percentages and the ways you make money? So I would say about 50%, of the income that I make off YouTube is just from YouTube ad revenue coming in from Google and that that's, you know, that, and that, that to me has never been anything exciting. It's never been a monetary amount that I've been like, whoa, you know, it's always kind of been like, okay, I mean, it's nice, but it's not amazing. Um, although in the last few months it's grown, the rest of it has been through working with the right brands. And I don't do it that often because I am, um, a, a real psycho about that. And the main reason for that has been, you know, here's a, just blow up my own spot of, of embarrassment here, but I've always felt like I was going to be a big name. I've always felt that. I've always believed that. I've always felt that the pursuits that I have are going to work, that the dreams that I have are going to come true. I've never wanted to like work with a brand that then that video surfaces and it's like I'm this cheesy girl just co-signing and promoting everything and feeling shame for that when I feel like, oh, I'm at this place now. I don't have to do that stuff anymore. And now I'm like, like all these videos, you know. And so I've always kind of been very careful about that um, for that reason. And so I do fewer, but I require a little bit larger of a payment if they want to do it. And so it's kind of like, you know, no problem, but this is the rate to do that. And um, because it's not only me creating the content, but it's my endorsement of that product and that exists across the internet. Yeah, you're only sponsoring my YouTube channel, but that's my endorsement that can be found by a Google search when you search my name and your company's name. And so there is value in that as well. Um, and so then there'll be the majority of those things will be those, those sponsored videos. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing. There are, you get pushback sometimes from people who don't like sponsored videos, you know, and I've never quite understood that. Um, because they're watching your content for free. So it's kind of like, you know, right. Sorry, I'll give you a refund. Oh, wait. Yeah. This was free. Um, so I don't, I never understand that, but you have to just sort of ignore that and let that stuff go. If that does get to you, you got to just know that this is a job and you, you commit a tremendous amount of time and you deserve to be compensated for your work and you deserve to be compensated well for your work and well for your education that you're providing and entertainment that you're providing. But yeah, the, 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 it's, it's sort of that kind of a split between the two. And, you know, I've always been envious of hearing people when they're sharing like what they make a month off of YouTube when it's these insane numbers. I'm like, that's just incredible. But um, the the revenue that comes in every month has never really felt like a game changer to me. But it's been nice to have. 
kind of a thing. When it comes to working with brands, do you wait for who's coming in and then you're just selective? Or do you also outreach directly and email brands that you want to potentially work with? I really just, uh, I sift through the ones that come in. I get probably 10 a day. Um, and so then I just look at the ones that come in. I, if it's a, a product I'm familiar with and I know I like, then we start the conversation. If it's one that I, that I'm not familiar with, I'll do a quick search on sort of brand confidence reviews. What are people saying about them? And if it sort of passes that test, then I will always require that they send me something first with zero commitment. I'm always happy to send it back, but if you're not letting me try it before I commit, there's something wrong there. So you got to give me the time it takes to know if it works before I commit to anything. Um, and then that's the second one. And then I have to actually really, um, it has to get past me using it and being something that I'd recommend to my mom and my sister. And if I wouldn't, then I'm, I'm not going to do it because I do have family and friends that watch my content and do buy the things I suggest. And I never want to have that moment of being like, no, that was just an ad. Why did you do that? Like, I never want that feeling. So I, if I wouldn't suggest it to my mom and my sister, then I'm not going to do it. Um, the only time I've ever done outreach, and it's been one of my most lucrative relationships ever, was um, the, the company Aspire IQ, which is like a, you know, uh, influencer branding sort of, you know, connector. Um, and they, they handle the whole thing and you upload the content directly through the platform and all that stuff. They put me in, I was reached out through them, um, for cricket, which is like a cutting machine. And it's this awesome, like, it's like your own little personal robot and it cuts out your designs and you can do decals and t-shirts and cut wood and plastic and all this awesome stuff. And I've worked with them now for probably three years. And every video we do is a dedicated video. So the, the price for that video is much higher than non-dedicated and it's a lot of work, but it's been, one of my one of my best relationships because the rate that they are willing to meet every time is something that's worth that level of work and i really really like it like i really like the product so it, it makes it um really easy to do i'm not like oh shoot you know hoping no one judges me for it you've already shared a lot of advice related to brand deals and sponsorships but for many who want to get started in brand deals and sponsorships um if you were starting from scratch what would you what advice would you give specifically for that money plan on YouTube? I think you have to have like a really clear sort of goal set or mission statement about what this, what the brands and those sponsorships, what they're going to fulfill for you and how they're going to fit into the overall image that you're creating, the brand that you're creating and all of that stuff. Because I think then that's really going to dictate the, what the things you say yes to and the amounts that you say yes to as far as actual monetary dollars. If, if the goal is, you know, there are a lot of people who do sponsored content for free because they want to appear like someone who's getting paid to do sponsored content. And that is their reasoning. They're hoping that by looking the part, they'll get those opportunities. And so for them, they're willing to do it for free, right? Others, no, you're going to, you're going to pay me to do the thing. Um, and, and that's the way it goes. So I think you have to really know what you're looking to get out of it. If you're at a place where you know your channel is providing value, I really am very adamant that you never take product for trade. Because to me, it's a really toxic habit, this idea that brands feel like they can give product and that that's your compensation. No, the product is the required materials to make your ad. I can't make your ad without your materials. I'm happy to take your product, make your ad, and send you back the product. 
I don't need it, but I'm not, no. Unless it is something you are literally getting ready to spend your own money on. And you're like, no, that saved me. I was going to get a new fridge. Holy cow. It just saved me $1,400 post-tax dollars. Like score, yes, duh. But if someone's like, I want to send you this new blow dryer and you make a dedicated video on it, like you're high. Absolutely not. You know, that that's not how it works. So for me, I think that even if the, even if the amount is $100, you know, or um, something like that, I think it's important for that buy-in that you feel like someone is, is buying into the value that you provide. Um, but again, it will come down for each person where they're at, where the goals are, you know, what, what is the goal in a year from now? And if it's just to grow, to get to a place where you're doing consistent sponsorships and hopefully getting on the radar of more and more brands, then you, you bite that bullet and you do as much as you want for free for as long as it feels good. But you got to really trust your own gut. And when it starts to feel slimy and it starts to not feel good anymore, you got to make a change and you either have to increase your rates or you have to reduce the ask. You have to do something so that you feel like it's a level playing field and like you're not being used. Like you're really, this is a really good partnership. I think that energy is really important in all of these things because they're like little micro deals you're doing over and over again. And they can leave you with a a really bad feeling if you're not kind of honoring yourself in it. We're doing a new segment called Repeat After Me. And uh, I'll say a sentence and then you repeat the sentence and then just finish this sentence with whatever comes to mind. Um, if I was starting a brand new YouTube channel today, the first thing I would do, repeat that sentence, and then what would be the first thing you would do? If I were starting a brand new YouTube channel today, the first thing I would do is create a schedule I would know for sure I could maintain on the regular without burning out. The biggest mistake new content creators make is? The biggest mistake new content creators make is not releasing anything until they think it's perfect. Just getting it out there is where you're going to learn all the lessons. You mean you 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 baby something and you hold it until it's perfect and then you like release it and it still probably sucks because it was your first one. So just like get it out. That repetition is where the sweet sauce is. You just learn so much by getting it out. Done is better than perfect. Yes. Oh my God. I mean, I need my own advice, but yeah. Repeat after me. The most important mindset you need as a content creator is? The most important mindset you need as a content creator is that you are talking to one person. That's everything, I think. It helps you in being someone that they feel connected to. It helps in the way that you actually communicate your words. One of the most annoying things is, hey, guys, to me. I don't want you. You're not... You're not talking to anyone else. You're talking to me. Just talk to me. I don't want to imagine this world of a million people sitting there on their phone. I want to imagine you're talking to me. And so I think you imagine you are talking to one person. You are teaching one person. You are explaining to one person. You are connecting with them. And then it also takes a little bit of the pressure off, you know, of, of worrying about what everyone's opinion is going to be when you're just kind of imagining one person. Or Lee, you uh, have added so much value today and just want to acknowledge you for uh, just sharing your wisdom for uh, the artistic spirit that you carry in your work and all of the uh, content that you put on your channel. And um, you've shared so many tips here. You've been very generous. Um, There's a lot of cool things you're you're doing um, for people that want to check you out. Where can they find you online as well as uh, some of these different projects that you have going on? 
Oh yeah. Thank you. It's been so fun. Um, so the YouTube channel is the DIY designer, um, brand new, either DIY personal style or styling hacks every week. And so that's a, a blast. And like we said, shorts, hopefully more often, um, TikTok is at Orly Shani. That's really social across the board at Orly Shani. So that's Instagram and, uh, and TikTok. And that is really about, again, practical tips, style language tips, styling hacks, really fun ideas. Um, it's just a fun little, um, escape of, of creativity and, and inspirational content, I hope. And then style language, mystylelanguage.com is the website. That is a beautiful online course. If you're someone who wants to feel more connected to your personal style, you want to feel like it's something that really represents who you are and not feeling the comparison game and being overwhelmed by trends and feeling like crap. Um, it really is about anchoring into who you really are. And so it's a beautiful process and there's an awesome community there. And then Rocknot, which is uh, rocknot.com. It's R-O-C-K-N-O-T. That is a brand that I started, which I hope provides inspiration because it started off as a DIY video and launched into a what I cannot believe successful kind of a business that it's become. It's all rhinestone cording that gets macrameed into all of these purse straps and purses and jewelry. And it's all detachable and multifunctional and interchangeable. Um, it's really, really fun. And so that's rocknot.com. And that's been a, a business that's been a real passion project and now becoming like a real thing, which I can't believe. <laughs> oh my God. Orly, thank you so much for coming on and adding value today on the podcast.